So this is one of my favorite texts. You can tell I like to play with this one a little bit. Hence the title for the reflection, H2. Oh boy, is that good. <laughs> and uh, the story that Sandy read to us is probably not unfamiliar uh, to you. If you've spent more than a year in a church, I'm sure somebody's pulled this story out. And I love it. It's uh, in the Gospel of John chapter two. And I'm gonna give you a little context for the story uh, to try to unpack a little bit, at least how I try to make sense out of what's going on in this. And then we'll get to why I think it, it might have importance for you and me in 2022, this May the 6th or 15th. So uh, Jesus' mother, Mary, and Jesus have been invited to a wedding in a, in a small village at that time of Cana. Now, at that time and place, weddings were a big, big deal. And normally folks would plan for at least a year for the wedding. And they weren't able to send out a save the date card, but they got word out however they did in those days uh, to plan. And, and a week, uh, it would not be uncommon that a wedding celebration would last a week. It wasn't just an afternoon affair. It could last well, a whole week. And so everything was planned uh, to the greatest detail. I mean, so you had to know the number of people that were going to come to your wedding because, you know, if you're going to, you know, supply housing and food and uh, hospitality for a week, you got to know who's coming. So Mary's been invited and Jesus comes with her. And probably unbeknownst to the wedding couple and family, Jesus brought 12 of his buddies along, new, new acquaintances, <laughs> the disciples, and four of those disciples were fishermen, and it was legendary how fishermen drink. And so it's no, um, it's no surprise that early on in the celebration, the wine's running low because there's four fishermen that weren't expected, have shown up, they're wedding crashers, and they're drinking everything in sight. And so it's this huge embarrassment, and who invited these 12, and, uh, Cousin Mary should have known better, you know, that we had a hundred. There were a hundred people supposed to come, not a hundred and twelve, a hundred. So anyway, so the, the wine's running low, and Mary goes to her son and says, look, you got to do something. This is an embarrassment. And Jesus, you know, says, oh, nothing I can do. What are you pushing me for? It's not my time. And Mary pays no attention to her son and goes and tells the wine stewards, hey, don't, don't listen to anything he says. Just do what he tells you to do. Don't listen to him. Just do what he tells you to do. And so what is, what is this about? And I'm not going to... I don't have the presumption that what I'm about to share with you is what really happened, but it's what, how I make sense of it, what I think happened in my own twisted imagination. So one of the, the key interpretive verses for me in the whole Bible is in the Gospel of John, three chapters later, verse 19. Jesus says to his friends that Jesus says, I, meaning himself, can only do what I see God doing. So Jesus was explaining to his friends, he wasn't a free agent. He couldn't just go heal whoever he wanted to heal. He couldn't walk on water whenever he wanted. He couldn't uh, multiply fish sandwiches whenever he had an inkling. He could only do what he saw God doing, indicating that 
the, the deep depth of relationship that he had with this divine other that we name God. And so he was not a free agent to just do magic tricks whenever he felt like it. That he could only do what God had showed him to do. And so what I think was going on in this text, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they're running the mill of mine. You've got to do something. And he's saying, I can't. I, I, I. And so what I do think happened is that Jesus then went out and prayed, God, what am I supposed to do? Mom wants me to do something. They're running low on one. And I think God said something to Jesus like, hey, listen to your mother. Just do what she wants. <laughs> and so then Jesus is now free to go tell the, the waiters to go fill up these six stone jars with water. And, and the end result is legendary as they now have 120 to 150 uh, gallons of the good stuff. And we're not talking Mogan David here. We're talking the good stuff. We're talking, it's not ripple, it's good. And so now they have good wine. And what I find so interesting is at the end of all this, it says this, now this was, as John records it in his telling of the gospel, this was the first, and John has seven signs that Jesus does, but this was the first, and that the disciples now put their trust in Jesus. They trusted him. They put their faith in him. Because he turned water into wine? What's that about? And, and, and the, the way I unpack this and what I think is, what the disciples recognized was that Jesus had an ability to change the elemental nature of water, of H2O, and change, transform it into something different than it was. He was able to make an elementary transformation of H2O into H2O, boy, is that good, and I want some of that. And that if Jesus could do this for water, maybe, just maybe, he could do that for me. Maybe on some level he could transform me from being a frightened, angry, selfish human being into something that can give life and joy to others. You know, our scientists tell us that we're 85% water or more. And if Jesus could change water into wine, maybe, maybe he could change us as individuals and us as a community. And that's one of the reasons, quite honestly, that I am a minister. And it's one of the reasons I'm a hospice chaplain. It's because I do believe in the power of transformation, that we don't have to just be what we are. Uh, and I saw this. I, I, I was taught this very vibrantly by one of my hospice patients a number of years ago. It's a man I called Ben, that was not his real name, but he was a hospice patient of mine that I fell in love with. Uh, when I first met Ben, the nurse, Pam, came back to our office and said, Ben wants to meet you. And she was laughing. And I said, what's so funny? She said, oh, you'll see. I said, why, I don't get it. She said, you'll see. She said, by the way, you might want to make him your last stop of the day. I said, all right. So I went to meet Ben. It was like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, 
I was there for about an hour, and in that hour, I think Ben smoked 500 cigarettes. He was lighting one on top of the other to get them in fast. He had this deep, gravelly voice. And every other word was the F, F bomb. It wasn't the four letter Fred word, it was a different F word. And I, and, I, and I realized on some level he was trying to chase me away. He wanted me to you know, show up, but then he was going, and now I took that as a challenge. No, you're not going to chase me away. So he, he told me his, he began to tell me his story. Uh, he told me uh, that he had made a career out of being a collection agent for uh, mobsters in the Midwest. And so when people had run up gambling debts or had taken out loans that they couldn't repay, his employers would send Ben to get the money. Ben didn't always use legal means, and so he spent a lot of his time in jail uh, for his work. And uh, that was just his life. So um, when I got home, I disrobed in the garage because my clothes stank of cigarettes, and I put them in the washing machine before I could get in the house. And I would continue to visit Ben on a very regular basis, weekly or almost weekly. And I fell in love with this crusty old guy. Uh, for the last six months of his life, literally, he lived on cigarettes and coffee. That's all he, that's all he consumed. And he had this And as I got to know him, he told me when he was growing up, his uh, father had been a, an alcoholic and a policeman and uh, had beat uh, ben and his mother a, a lot, domestic abuse, beat them badly. And finally, when Ben was around 10, for whatever reasons, the father deserted his mother and himself, much to, to Ben's delight. And Ben told me that on his 21st birthday, he got it, went out and got drunk and tracked his father down and beat the crap out of him. Said it was the best day of his life. It was better than any sex he'd ever had in his whole life. It was the greatest day of his life that he could beat his father. So this is who my friend was. And he had spent years in jail for his work. And somehow in jail, he had a, an experience with this Jesus, this water wine guy that helped change him. And when he got out of jail, and he was in his mid-30s or early 40s, he met a woman named I, Katrina, I think, or so, I forget her name. But he fell in love. This woman loved him. And he loved her. And he told me for the first time in his life, he did things for another human being, not for himself. He delighted in caring for her and receiving her love and giving her love. The power of her love changed him transformed him. And as years went on, she died of some kind of cancer. And Ben had reconnected with another woman he was living with who was helping care for him and he was caring for her. And that's where I met him. And that, this was the story of my friend Ben. And he would just tell me stories of his life and his adventures and I would listen. And I can remember it was about a week before he died. Uh, he no longer had an ability to drink coffee or even smoke cigarettes. He was laying on his bed. And he looked up at me and he said, why do you do this? Why do you come here? Why do you waste your time with me? What do you, what do you get out of this? What is this? 
And I can remember I looked at him and I said, Ben, you are an icon of hope for me. And I said, what? What the hell? An icon of hope? What? what? And I said, when I look at you, I see a man who had an incredibly hard life. And yet the power of love was so strong that it transformed you from being a mean, bitter human being into a caring soul. And when I look at you, I see that hope. And if, if love can do that for you, then maybe it could even do that for me. And so you are hope for me. Well, he started crying and I started crying. And it was the truth. And all I did was reflect back to Ben who he really was, that he had forgotten in the midst of the dying and the cigarettes and the coffee and the cursing. And that's my hope for us as a faith community. You know, we come to this place. We call it a church. And we say we're trying to follow Jesus on the path of radical love, the way of radical love. And, and, and look, I don't want to mislead you. I'm not so naive to think that we're going to have some kind of Pollyanna, kumbaya experience here that we're all just going to love each other and get on and it's going to be easy. Love is really, really hard. It was hard for my friend Ben. It's hard for me. It's hard for us. And here's where I see this comes into play. And I'm just sharing with you the honesty of my heart, what I struggle with. I mean, in the last week, couple of weeks, we have seen erupt another one of our cultural wounds. For more than 50 years as a culture, we have fought over the idea of abortion. And when does life begin? And, and the, the choice that women must make and have to make. And we've been fighting about that for over 50 years. And it's the pus of all that festering has just erupted anew. And, and uh, other eruptions in our culture. 150 years ago, we fought a war, one of the bloodiest wars on this soil, for Europeans anyway. And many people died to end the owning of other human beings of a different color and a different race. And I'm so glad for that outcome. That it's no longer legal to own another human being for crying out loud. But there's not been healing to that wound. That wound is still festering with all the racial strife and division that we have in our culture. Who you can trust, what color of skin can you trust of another person. And then even predating that, we have the the way European-Americans treated the indigenous peoples that lived here. And the wounds of that are not healed. And what the First Nations people have endured and continue to endure in this culture is not healed. And so while laws have changed, and I'm so glad for that, laws need to change. But it has not brought healing. And see, it's my hope that as a ragtag group of would-be Jesus followers, that in a place like this, transformation would be possible. I don't expect laws to bring heartfelt 
transformation. But I expect houses of prayer like this to be places of heartfelt transformation where water can be turned into wine, where selfish, angry, frightened human beings can be transformed into loving, other-centered human beings, where we can extend kindness to each other. So that when we gather together in this place, this sacred place, that we would refrain from, from screaming, and blaming, and shaming language. And that we would begin, that, that we would stop having monologues with witnesses. And that we wouldn't listen in order to reply, but that we would begin to listen to each other, to learn and to grow and, and to be transformed. So that somehow, with kindness and, and dignity and honor, we can encourage one another and sort through the incredibly difficult issues that face us all, that there are no easy answers for, and, and slogans and sound bites from our favorite political talking heads aren't going to solve this stuff. But that we would learn to be transformed ourselves and as a community. And that we would have something to offer the greater community at large in this house of prayer. That this would be a place we could grow and learn and treat each other differently. That, that's my hope for this. And my hope for this doesn't rely on the wisdom of our church council, which is a fabulous council, or on the wonderful interim minister that hopefully we will find and connect with us. And my hope isn't on the good intentions of us gathered here because, yeah, we haven't done spectacular so far. My hope is in the one that began all this is uh, Paul the Apostle said in Philippians 1, chapter 6, that, that the one who began a good work in us will see it to completion. That the Jesus that turned water into wine would continue the work of transformation with those of us that are 85 or more percent water. And that we would all be transformed. That's my hope. That, that's, yeah, that's my hope for us. You know, I, I like to think, John says in the gospel passage that this was the first sign Jesus did. I like to think, you know, Jesus started his ministry at a week-long party where he brought the booze. <laughs> and, and I like that. There's something about that that comforts me. And, and so as, as we enter into this interim period as a faith community, it's a reminder to have some fun along the way, to not take ourselves so seriously, to, to remember to celebrate the joys we can while we can. There is work to do, but we can do this together, trusting that the one who started all this will help us get to a good conclusion. That's my hope and my prayer for us.